This sermon was given by Garner Ted Armstrong in 1988, following a speech by Yasser Arafat to the United Nations. Much has transpired since then. The Oslo Accords, Israel ceding control of Gaza, moving both its citizens and military out, Palestinian elections fracturing Gaza and the West Bank, leading to the rise of Hamas and wars with Israel. Now in November of 2023, a brutal terrorist attack by Hamas, the abduction of hundreds of hostages, and Israel's crushing response have dominated our news cycle. The situation is ongoing. This sermon offers a look at some of the prophecy, history, and the intractable nature of this conflict. It speculates on how world powers could be drawn in, a scenario not hard to imagine in light of today's events. And now, Garner Ted Armstrong. Greetings again, everyone. All of you know, of course, that the United States is now talking with Yasser Arafat, that our envoy in Cyrenaica, or actually over in Tunisia, in Tunis, Cyrenaican Peninsula, has been in communication with some lesser dignitaries of the so-called Palestinian Liberation Organization. It's been the big story on the CNN and all the network news for about the last three to four days, beginning, of course, with Arafat's fabled announcement of the creation of a Palestinian state, which was dismissed as nothing but rhetoric by the United States and, of course, most nations, but especially Israel. Then his desire to talk to the United Nations, the United States' refusal for him to be permitted a visa to enter our country for the simple reason that up until two days ago, in all of the years since the 1948 issuance of the decree, if you will call it that, by the United Nations that declaring that there was a state of Israel in the immediate war that broke out in 1948, resulting in the partitioning of that land between Palestinian Arabs and the Israelis and the settlers who were coming there, oftentimes under the British mandate from 1922 on, illegally. And many of you saw the motion picture, I think, probably up to 20 years ago now, called Exodus. Uh, having nothing to do with the old exodus, of course, of Moses' day, but having to do with the modern exodus of hundreds of thousands of Jews who were coming from all over Europe, Western Europe, and in some rare cases, even from the United States. And, of course, that exodus has continued to this day. We still read continually of demonstrations in the Soviet Union where Soviet Jewry still wants to return, to be given permission to return to the nation of Israel. The little nation of Israel, as you can envision it on the maps you may have studied at that time, had a very narrow waist with a portion of what is today called the West Bank coming clear across the top of that narrow spine of mountains that works its way down from the Sea of Galilee around the area of Megiddo, where it really begins, down to Jerusalem. It devolves down onto the maritime plain, and then, of course, all along the Mediterranean coastland, it is fairly flat, where you find Tel Aviv and on down further to Joppa, or the ancient... Gaza and the Gaza Strip. Jerusalem, of course, is in very high mountains, and then immediately it starts very steeply down toward the deepest depression in the earth, which is the Dead Sea. At that time, from 1948 to 1966, if you can envision the map in your mind, Israeli farmers who were planting on their kibbutzim and their farms in the, fer the fertile or verdant plains surrounding the southern part and even that very narrow edge of the eastern portion of the Sea of Galilee, or the Lake of Knesseret, were oftentimes the victims of sharpshooters and snipers who were up in what is called the Golan Heights. If you've ever been there, and I have been a couple of times after the 66 war, 
I toured the Golan Heights and drove all over those areas, got down into some of the machine gun emplacements with the barbed wire and the trenches and everything there, looking right down on those valleys below and realized that with my deer hunting rifles, the 270 or so, I could easily sit up there and pick off people on tractors. So for years, of course, the Israelis dwelt with a situation which was completely untenable. To their south was Egypt and the Sinai. To their immediate west was Jordan and a near neighbor right across a portion of the Gulf of Aqaba, Saudi Arabia. To their northwest, or northeast, I'm sorry, I should say, to their east and their northeast would be Syria and to their immediate north, Lebanon, or the Lebanon as it's commonly referred to over there. They realized that an armored column from the Jordanian Desert Legion, backed up by Saudi Arabia, Egypt, or Syria, could knife right straight through them and completely cut the two cities of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, their two principal cities, apart, and they would just be in a terrible strait because they simply could not move troops back and forth. In the 1966 war, I want to go back and reminisce a little bit with you about this because what I'm leading up to has to do with the very focal point of all of biblical prophecy, all of biblical history. In fact, the Bible is a Middle Eastern book. Its prophets walked the streets and the roads, the towns and the villages of that area of the world we know of as Israel and sometimes other areas around like Syria and Lebanon and so on, but that Middle Eastern section that crucial strategic area between Africa and the Far East and Asia and India and Europe, which is one of the most critical in all the world, is the very pivotal setting for the final great grand smash finale of the human story, culminating in the Great Tribulation, the battle called the Battle of Armageddon, the outpouring of God's wrath called the Day of the Lord, and the very place to which Jesus Christ is going to return. The question we ought to ask, perhaps, is, will the creation of a Palestinian state, if it is legislated, arbitrated, and enforced by the superpowers by bringing unbearable pressure on Israel to concede some or most of the West Bank, and give an enclave which would entitle the Palestinian Arabs to sovereignty right back basically where they were in that bulge across the West Bank into that part of the very heartland of modern Israel, will the creation of a Palestinian Arab state bring peace at last in the Middle East? Will we then have peace? That's what Arafat is saying. The United States said he didn't say the right words. One day later, he got up there and said the right words. I don't know why I'm suspicious of that. But one day earlier, he was not acceptable. We wouldn't talk to him. He didn't say the right words. Then he jumped up and said the right words. The world is rejoicing. We're going to have peace in the Middle East. In 1965, we got in touch with the Jordanian Broadcasting Company. We were in touch with a gentleman who later on came to work with us at Ambassador College in Brickettwood in England who was a, an official of that broadcasting company that had a very powerful transmitter located in the old city of Jerusalem. If you recall, Jerusalem, just like Berlin, was a divided city. The old city of Jerusalem, Hebron, Bethlehem, all of that was in Jordanian hands. When I was first there in the early 1960s, we wanted to go to visit the holy sites, and the only way you could do it was to go from Arab countries into Israel. You could not go the other way. 
Do you understand why? Because the implacable hatred of the Arab neighbors around Israel for the Israeli, as they call it, Zionist state, is so fervid and so hot and so extreme that it's almost impossible for you to believe it. I want to get into that a little bit and tell you something about it, but I want to recommend for you something I rarely ever do, and that is a novel by Leon Uris entitled The Hodge, H-A-J. If I have ever read an exposition that explains right down to the ground in colorful detail so that you practically live it through the eyes, as it were, of an 11-year-old boy growing up in a refugee camp among the Palestinian Arabs, if I have ever understood the entire scenario between Palestinian Arabs in Israel and the surrounding countries like the Bekaa Valley of southern Lebanon and, of course, in Jordan and their hatred toward the Israelis, it was by reading that book by this eminent author and historian as well as novelist, Leon Uris, who wrote, of course, a lot of other books, including the famous book called The Exodus, on which that motion picture was, was made or was based. The Hajj is merely the Arabic term for the Hijra, and the Hijra is that point which begins the dating of the Islamic calendar. It dates from the time of the Medina to Mecca uh, pilgrimage of their prophet Muhammad, and it was called the Hijra. It happened in a particular year. That, of course, that is Mecca with its mosque, its famous mosque, is even holier than the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. They're perhaps second and third in uh, their degree of reverence among the Islamic world. But the original mosque, which was the site from which that hijra began, is a place to which all of these people take pilgrimages. And as many, many Christians, so-called, would love to make a pilgrimage to Bethlehem, to be there at Christmas Eve, or as many American televangelists and others do, to go to Jerusalem and to go to the holy sites and do a broadcast from the Garden of Gethsemane or the place of Golgotha, as I have done, or from inside the garden tomb, or to see all of these religious artifacts, the so-called Stations of the Cross, which are absolutely ridiculous because it's 15 feet above where the street used to be back during the day of Jesus anyway, but a lot of it is pagan, a lot of it is traditional, and some of it is accurate. But for the Islamic world to go and actually pray in that fabled mosque in Mecca is to be the trip, the pilgrimage, is to accomplish the pilgrimage of a lifetime. In this one little village, only one man was able to finally afford it and to do it, to travel to Saudi Arabia, to go to that holy, sacred place, and to return. Since he had then performed his own hajira, he became known, and his nickname as the chieftain of the Arab village was the Hajj, the guy who had been there. The dignity that attached itself to him, and the incredible stories of, first of all, the great love, the great cooperation, the mutual respect between Jew and Arab, the degree to which they and their children worked and played together and got along together and helped one another and understood one another, is absolutely incredible in that book. What began to drive wedges between them, where some of the irreconcilable differences were, the religious problems, the suspicions, the resentments, the industriousness of the Jews who dug wells who began to fertilize their crops. The two corn stands of the Jewish field with its verdant, big, tall, twelve-foot stalks of corn with eight or ten ears on each one and the little withered, yellow, hard-scrabble 
plot of corn that was raked with a stick behind a donkey by the Arabs dry land farming and the Arabs accusing the Jews of sabotaging their crops. It's fantastic to read it all. I really urge it upon you. I hope you will read, if you want to understand a little bit of the tapestry of the Middle East and the background behind all of this, by all means go into the B. Dalton bookstore and get a book called The Hodge, H-A-J, by Leon Uris. It's great reading. It will really give you a good perspective of it. When we were going to go on radio in Jordan, it was to be in the summer of 1966. My father had already preceded me to England, and he was over at Ambassador College in Brigid Wood. My wife and I were in Pasadena. We were going to go to England, and we were going to visit the campus there for a few days, and then go on, and my dad and I were going to make the first inaugural radio programs from on the spot in Jerusalem, in the studios of the Jordanian, the Royal Jordanian Broadcasting Company, with its huge, big 100,000-watt transmitter in the old city of Jerusalem. I was in England on the way to go on the next couple of days when the 1966 Six-Day War broke out. I had known it was coming, but I didn't know how soon, because when we were in Egypt less than nine months earlier, I had seen a tremendous number of tanks, a tremendous massing of troops. We had seen artillery pieces and tent camps and troops here and there. Even in vacant lots in downtown Cairo, they were just jammed with tanks and army trucks and all kinds of equipment. So you could see that the Middle East was an armed camp. Now, to explain a little bit of what went on in the minds of some of those people, you could not, if your passport had a stamp in it that had the Israeli customs stamp or immigration stamp, and you were to go to any Arab country, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Bahrain, it didn't matter, the Lebanon or Syria or Jordan, they would look at it, close it up, and out you go. You may stay in the airport till the next aircraft leaves, but you don't officially enter their country because of their implacable hatred toward the Jewish faith. To them, the Jews didn't exist. They denied there was any such legitimate thing years and years, decades after they'd been sitting there, thriving, bursting with growth, absolutely splendiferous in the incredible beauty that was so much of a contrast between the bleak desert country of Jordan and the verdant beauty of modern Israel, but they denied that it existed. So when I went through Lebanon, we did our party. There were about six of us, I think, at that time. I've forgotten. Cheryl and I, and I think Norman and Charlene and Lyle and who else? Maybe the Huntings. I forget at that particular. We'd taken several trips, but I think that was the group that was with us then. You wouldn't know who some of them are. Anyway, I was doing some on-the-spot radio programs with a reel-to-reel Ewer tape recorder, which was pretty bulky and big in those days and very, very heavy with big batteries, very different from today's uh, solid-state little deals we can carry around. But... I wanted to get some background material on populations and this and that and the other thing, so I walked into a bookstore in Beirut to buy an almanac. I wanted to get some background on Israel as well as some of the Arab states. I turned to the section on Israel, and a couple, three pages were kind of stuck together. Well, I tried to get them apart. I couldn't get them apart. I tried to get a knife or something sharp to get them apart. They had been glued 100% glued, soaked with glue, and glued together. There wasn't any page in the almanac that listed Israel, because Israel didn't exist. Now, these are the links to which these people will go in their denial of reality and the denial that there even was such a state as the state of Israel. So we went to Petra, 
we went to Amman. We came to Jerusalem and stayed on the Intercontinental, Intercontinental Hotel up at the top of the Mount of Olives. And when we were finally through with visiting all of the areas in the old city, including the site of the famous Garden of Gethsemane, the Mount of Olives, the place of Golgotha, where I did a radio program and so on, it was time to go into New Jerusalem, that portion across the little narrow valley that has been built all up with huge skyscrapers and modern buildings. Then, of course, it was nowhere near as developed as it is today with the Hilton Hotel and everything else. Then that didn't exist, but it was still a far better-looking city, a thriving metropolis in comparison with the old city of Jerusalem with its walls and its various quarters, its Armenian quarters and its Jewish quarter, its Arab quarter with the Dome of the Rock and so on. I want to relate to you what happened because, again, it illustrates the situation that had existed all from those years of 48 through the beginning of the 66 Six-Day War in the summer of 1966. We got in our taxi cab at the Intercontinental Hotel, all of us with our bags there, and they loaded them in these rickety old cabs. And we drive, and it's probably not a half mile, three quarters of a mile, down the hill and around a few corners, come to an area where here is a no-man's land of rubble of just bulldozed area of broken bits of concrete and stone, of great big weeds growing up, and tangles of rusted barbed wire and rusting sheets of metal of some derelict trucks or something. Obviously a former war zone. It is a no man's land, I guess one or two hundred yards in width, and on each side of it, on the Arab site were machine gun emplacements, rifle pits, all kinds of rolled up barbed wire. And over on the Jewish side were barricaded buildings and sandbagged walls and the helmets of Jewish soldiers with the snouts of machine guns and rifles poked out. And here you are, an unarmed civilian, between these two hostile forces with many, many guns poking in your direction, with helmeted soldiers with their binoculars looking at you. You get out of the taxi, you wrestle the bags onto the dust, you pay the taxi driver, who by this time has become very surly. He's not a bit happy to be dropping you off at a place where they simply roll back some of the barbed wire and let you through. But you pick up what you can carry, and your wife picks up what she can carry, and because you're traveling, you know, for weeks overseas, you've got considerable baggage, and it weighs a good little bit. You start trudging across a couple of hundred yards of no man's land carrying your own baggage until you finally come to another barbed wire gate where the Israelis let you through and you think you have died and gone to heaven. I mean, in a sense. The feeling of relief when you get into that nation and then you begin to look at the terraced, beautiful hills with thousands of trees having been planted, verdant and beautiful, conifers and fruit trees. You go down into the maritime plain in the valley and you just see something that looks exactly like the Central Valley of California. Thousands of acres of citrus, of vegetables, of every kind of fruit, orchards, trees in every, you know, and wheat fields and so on. As far as you can see, my son lived over there for oh, a year and a half or two and uh, was in charge of the office over in Jerusalem. So he's been all over the region and knows exactly what I'm talking about, and, of course, had Arabs as well as Israelis for friends, and certainly got to understand uh, many of the things that I'm talking about so far as the feelings between these two people. What does the average Islamic uh, adherent, the average uh, Muslim, think about the Christian religion? Who does he think Christ really was? Well, I won't use his language because that would be blasphemous. But let me tell you that he utterly impugns, ridicules, disdains, scorns, and sneers at the Christian religion. 
He hates it. He can't stand it. There have been too many years of the Crusades, of the Islamic Wars, of the spread of the Ottoman Empire, of the advance of Allenby in 1919 into the area of the Middle East and Jerusalem itself, and finally marching into Jerusalem, the, the British Mandate of 1922, after the Balfour Declaration, which was nothing so much as a letter written to one of the Rothschilds, who was one of the financiers of the Zionist movement, and the creation of the British Mandate included large segments of quotations from the Balfour Declaration, which created a Jewish Mandate. And the British, of course, tried to keep these two people from fighting. Along came World War II, and everybody kind of laid down their domestic squabble until the World War II was over. And then with the beginning of massive Jewish immigration, the Arabs began to respond. We come to 1948, the UN resolution creating the State of Israel, a war that broke out, the narrow waste that I've talked about until 1966, at which time the Arabs miscalculated. Now, a lot of you have read about that war. You remember it perhaps vaguely because all of you adults were alive and well at that time. And you remember that for a time it looked like the Israelis were going to take a beating. Massive tank columns had come from the Sinai through the Mitla Pass and were already on their way up toward Israel. The Syrians had massed tanks in the Golan Heights and were really giving the Israelis a bloody nose in the northern part of the country. But the Israeli Air, the Israeli Air Force and the army managed to just about utterly destroy the Egyptian army at the Mitla Pass. And then they could turn their attention to the northern part around the Golan Heights and whipped up on the Syrians. And finally, even though they could have taken Cairo and could have marched on Damascus if they had so chosen at that time, so complete was their victory. But they knew they couldn't occupy and garrison a city of 12, 13 million people like Cairo. They had no use for it, nor additional territory. But you know what they took? All of the Sinai right to the Suez Canal, all of that bulge across their mountainous spine of the Maritime Plain that had practically divided Tel Aviv from Jerusalem, and all of the West Bank to the Jordan River, and all of the Golan Heights clear past Kunaitra to a new border with Syria. So they had enlarged, more than doubled, their national territory as the victors in a war which they didn't start. Now, you know your history, I'm sure, from the time of the beginning of the Camp David Accords and the eventual relinquishing on the part of Israel of very productive oil fields, their internal debacle, the debate in their own Knesset, the terrible problems of hundreds and thousands of settlers who had gone down and established kibbutzim or settlements in the Sinai and who were ousted and chased out of there by the Israeli government demonstrators in Jerusalem and in Tel Aviv trying to resist this movement to give back much of the Sinai except a certain portion for security reasons, including producing oil wells to Anwar Sadat and the nation of Egypt. They've already made that concession. They gave it back. Semi-autonomy has been granted, uh, granted many of the towns and villages in the West Bank and in the Gaza Strip, although the garrison is the Israeli army. And the police, while in some cases Arabs could be like indigenous local police forces and even have set up in some of their West Bank cities today, uh, like some of our volunteer police forces and guard units in various cities and towns like the people in New York who ride the subways, some of the Arabs do have their own local police forces, but they're not armed. They're merely being pick up a stick or a club or something to try to control their own populaces. Now we come up to the present 
you well know that in the past many, many months, there has been a kind of a steady, constant uprising in the West Bank. One after another, incident of rock throwing, of rioting, of overturning vehicles, of assaulting populaces, and, of course, they say, well, these poor kids, all they got is rocks. All they got is Molotov cocktails. All they got is sticks and stones. Well, a rock can kill you. And a Molotov cocktail can set fire to your car. Not only then has Israel been with its back to the wall with some of the uh, Arabs who are mounting attacks across their border as terrorists to try to machine gun civilians aboard buses and so on, but they've had this constant nightmare to which oftentimes the police overreact, as we did in the Kent State riots during the 1960s in the United States, where some guardsmen simply panicked and began shooting into unarmed civilian crowds. Sometimes you make the mistake. If you push a man with a rifle far enough, it's possible you might make him mad. It's possible if you hit him in the face with a rock, you might even make him lose his temper. If he loses his temper, he is no longer a disciplined soldier who wouldn't think of hurting a fly standing there with an M16 machine gun. He might turn the gun on you and shoot you. Now, if you read the Hodge, you'll come to understand what I'm talking about. The vast majority of all of those kids involved in those riots have been born since the 1966 Six-Day War. They are the product of a particular factory. That factory is a factory that produces hatred. If you will read the Hodge, for example, you will discover how a little child might be told by his parents about their mansion. Of which, out of which they were evicted when the Israelis came in and took away all their territory. Of their beautiful village with their bus lines and their gleaming cities and their 7-Eleven shops on the corner. Of their fabulous infrastructure. Of the beautiful LTD they drove. Of their nine-room home with three baths. When in fact they lived in a little bitty rock cubicle about nine by seven. They all slept on the floor. There was nothing but a piece of burlap in the window. They had no physical facilities. They had no vehicle. There was only one bicycle to about every 40 or 50 of them. One automobile to about every thousand of them. But the stories that get told and the exaggerations and the exacerbations of all the problems over the years and years and years, if you can imagine a non-indigenous population of refugees forced to exist along the borders of Israel, never and this is a damning or a condemning statement, never allowed to be assimilated into the populations of any other Arab state. Because in their own way, to the Iraqis, to the Syrians, to the Lebanese, and to the Egyptians, a Palestinian Arab is like a Jew. For some reason, perhaps it is heredity, the Palestinian Arab is more intelligent, he is more industrious, he is crafty, he is likely to be a shopkeeper or a tradesman or a professional, and he will get ahead in a society of Arabs. And for that reason, he is suspect, and in many of the Arabs, but kept in the most wretched conditions you can begin to imagine. Can you imagine? a race of people living within smelling and, and, and practically, you know, eyesight and smelling distance of their own former national border for 22 and more years. 
raising children and whole families year after year after year. Can you imagine that? It is a fertile breeding ground for the kind of hatred that you see on your nightly news with young 11, 12, 14-year-old kids with big rocks in their hands charging down the street trying to kill an Israeli soldier. Now, it's fun to riot. Kids love it. You know, Halloween is licensed to riot. When you tell an 11, 12, 13-year-old boy that not only is it legal, but it's to be desired, that all the kids are doing it, and the hatred is pointed toward the police and the army and the Israelis who took away from us our fabulous homes, and the excitement of a child getting out there and being able to sort of break the law and break windows and throw rocks. I mean, you can identify with that, can't you? I know the, the women can't. But the boys and the men, they can identify. They understand what I'm talking about. When you make it legal and you make it even desirable to gather with your own race, your own nation, your own people, you've got a ready-made riot right then and there. It's not difficult at all for the agitators to put the kids up front and stay in the back where they're not going to get hurt and to send these kids out with rocks in the face of bayonets and live ammunition. I was treated this morning several different times on CNN with the x-ray picture of one Palestinian Arab boy who was shot in the head with a plastic bullet. But he was so close, the plastic bullet entered the skull. You could see it lodged there. And the boy, you can see him lying there with the tubes in his nose, died. And I got treated to huge pools of blood in the operating room. And I got treated to people lying there with blood all over them and so on. And it was talking about the latest large number of deaths in that, in that nation. Let's turn to Matthew, the 24th chapter, for a moment. We're very familiar with this verse, but I want to show it to you once more because it is the pivotal place of all of biblical prophecy of what we are to look for. I want to give you something as a precaution that we may have taken for granted, which may not be true, about just where is this place. In Matthew 24, Jesus Christ, talking about the great tribulation that is going to come, said, When you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place where it ought not, then whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be, and I'm reading in verse 15 and 16, let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now, if you want to look up Daniel 8, 13, 9, 27, 11, 31, and 12, 11, you will find every one of those is a reference to the abomination of desolation. I would urge you to look it up in the Companion Bible, if you can avail yourself of a copy, because the footnotes are quite interesting, and I'll give you a couple of examples of that right quickly, with regard to the abomination of desolation. For example, in the ninth chapter, in the 27th verse, Bullinger has this note, and I will read that verse so that you understand what the note is about. The 27th verse of the ninth chapter says, He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease. And then it says, And for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. Now the note on that, in Bollinger's Companion Bible, says, See his appendix 90. This is certainly future. See Matthew 24, 15. Our Lord tells us where it will stand, quote, in the holy place, i.e., or in other words, in the temple at Jerusalem. We have always thought that, we've always preached that, that the holy place means the holy of holies inside the temple, the place into which the high priest entered only once a year on the atonement. And we have the same admonition to understand Antiochus, then he goes on, the type of the little horn, defiled the sanctuary but did not destroy it. 
He cannot therefore be the fulfiller of this prophecy, though he foreshadowed him. So much for that note. In Kiddo's Bible Cyclopedia, or Cyclopedia of uh, Bible Knowledge, I want to turn to that right quickly and give you a little bit on it. Under his article, The Abomination of Desolation, in Daniel 9.27, literally, the abomination of the desolator, which is more is really clearer, which means an abomination by a man who would create chaos or destruction or desolation, which without doubt means the idol or idolatrous apparatus which the desolator of Jerusalem would establish in the holy place. This appears to have been a prediction of the pollution of the temple by Antiochus Epiphanes, who caused an idolatrous altar to be built on the altar of burnt offerings. Antiochus was one of the successors of the Seleucidae that began with Seleucus Nicator, who was a general, one of the four generals, who succeeded Alexander upon his death when the great Alexander of the empire of, uh, of Alexander the Great was divided basically to the four winds of Laomedon in Syria and Seleucus Nicator and, of course, then Ptolemy Soter in Egypt. And they then began waging war back and forth across Palestine. There were many such battles that took place. Antiochus Epiphanes caused an idolatrous altar to be built on the altar of burnt offerings, whereon unclean things were offered to Jupiter Olympus. I asked you earlier, what do you think people of Islam think about the Christian religion? Well, what does the average Christian think about Islam? Well, he thinks Muhammad was an idiot. He thinks he was a fake. He thinks he was a charlatan, a fraud, and a liar. Doesn't he? I do. That's what I think about him. Uh, what does the average Jew think about Islam? What does the average Muslim think about Judaism and their idea of their national heroes? You have to remember that religion is at all times at the absolute basis of the problems in the Middle East. Ninety percent of the time on your evening news, it's all political. It is all socioeconomic. It has to do with territory and with sovereignty, and with national integrity. It has to do with righting wrongs. It has to do with riots. But the fundamental problem is protracted hatred and contempt, which is religious in nature. If somebody tells somebody else that his God, not the king is a fink, but their God is a fink, you know, that gets right down to the heart of, of what can really upset you. So because these people hate each other religiously, there is never going to be peace in the Middle East until the setting up of the kingdom of Almighty God. All right. Josephus distinctly refers to this as the accomplishment of Daniel's prophecy, as does the author of the first book of Maccabees, in declaring that they set up the abomination of desolation upon the altar. And he quotes the Maccabees in that, which is an historical book of the Apocrypha and is not the received text and should not be in the Bible, even though the Raz Dawei version has it, or the Catholic Dawei version. The phrase is quoted by Jesus, and he quotes it, and is applied by him to what was to take place at the advance of the Romans against Jerusalem. That's true. The first typical fulfillment. Now, remember that Jesus said this long after the abomination of desolation had occurred several times in the past, certainly at the destruction of the temple, the Solomon, or, or Solomon's temple, by Nebuchadnezzar, and then its rebuilding and re reconsecration later on. The abomination, or it had been desolated at that time, and then, of course, it had been desolated by Antiochus Epiphanes, long before Jesus' day. 
They who saw the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place were enjoined to flee to the mountains, and this may with probability be referred to the advance of the Roman army against the city with their image-crowned standards, which are covered in an article in the Watch magazine some months ago, to which idolatrous honors were paid and which the Jews regarded as idols. You've seen them at the head of Nazi columns. They're a staff with solar symbols, with banners, with various uh, initials on them, with tassels, with perhaps the horns of a bull, meaning the sign of Taurus, and perhaps even a woman, which is uh, a goddess or the imperial eagle of ancient Rome, which is also found in modern-day Germany. The unexpected retreat and discomfiture of the Roman forces afforded such as were mindful of our Savior's prophecy an opportunity of obeying the injunction which it contained, and some of them did escape, most of them did not that the Jews themselves regarded the Roman standards as abominations is shown by the fact that in deference to their known aversion, the Roman soldiers quartered in Jerusalem forbore to introduce their standard into the city. And on one occasion, when Pilate gave orders that they should be carried in by night, so much stir was made in the matter by the principal inhabitants that for the sake of peace, the governor was eventually induced to give up the point. That's in Antiquities, and I won't turn to it. I brought that so I could read it to you, but why bother? I'm quoting it here. But that's Josephus. Those, however, who suppose that the holy place, and this is what I wanted to get to, those who suppose that the holy place of the text must be the temple itself. Interrupt myself here for a moment. Pause. There have been all kinds of doctrinal ideas and prophetic statements made based upon the supposition that the prophecy of Jesus Christ, which says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing in the holy place, or it ought not, implies that a temple must be built. Now, it gets to the point that I sent Lyle Christofferson, who at that time was a photographer of ours, to the East Coast to quarry after quarry, where allegedly marble and Pennsylvania stone and different kinds of stone were being sawn to appropriate lengths, measured, numbered, and stacked on the dock because Raymond McNair had written an article which was going to be put in the next issue of the Plain Truth magazine, alleging that a temple is about to be built and the stones are already stockpiled on the docks. A ready-made temple, all you got to do is pick up the stones in several ships and send them over there and offload them, put them on the railway, take them up to Jerusalem and presto, a temple goes up. I called all over the country. I tried to track down the people who had written the original article and failed. He didn't find a single rock that had been quarried from any place. It was a lie made up out of whole cloth by some character or other, for some purpose or other, and some of our very gung-ho people had swallowed it and were going to make us look like idiots by putting in the plain truth. And if any serious person ever checked up, they'd find out just what we found out. It isn't true. I'm real cantankerous about that type of thing. I'll send somebody to the place and find out. Just like the computer that discovered Joshua's lost day, or long day, remember that? Remember the long day the computer discovered it? The name was Henry Hill. I called the universities where the computer was supposed to be. They said, you're about the 114th whatever they called. Never heard of the guy. Don't know what you're talking about. Besides, the computer can't do that anyway. It only puts back what you put in. If you put the lost day or the long day rather in there, it'll spew it back out. But it was ridiculous. The guy was a liar. It was a charlatan, a fake. But there were religious magazines all over the United States that talked about a great proof of the Bible 
that the long day of Joshua has been discovered by a computer. And the name of the guy who performed the experiment was right there in the article. Well, enough of that. But many, many times we had presupposed and had preached and practically gotten axiomatic or dogmatic about it that a temple was going to be built, even to the point that we're saying, now, why would a temple be built? And we would speculate, and I could do that with you right now, that it might be built under the following circumstances. Let's say that somehow the United States and the Soviet Union, and especially all of Western Europe, basically all the world, with Israel standing alone, which as of right now while we sit here, she in fact is. The United States is now talking to the PLO, and Israel is not. All of our allies sat there and applauded the speech and condemned the United States for the sole abstention of Britain. But Belgium, the Netherlands, France, West Germany, Turkey, Greece, Spain, Portugal, all of NATO, all of Scandinavia, even little Iceland, sat there and applauded Arafat's speech and condemned the United States for not allowing Arafat into the country and went trucking over at enormous cost, hundreds and hundreds of people flooding into Geneva the other day to listen to this bearded terrorist give his speech where he tried to do some fancy footwork around the issue, sort of admitting that, well, Israel was there, but not making the statement we acknowledge it has a right to exist. So when George Shultz said, and our American State Department said, he didn't say the words we wanted. The next day he bounded onto a different platform and said the words they wanted. Wonderful. Peace going to break out in the Middle East. And now we're talking to our ambassador over there in Tunisia, in Tunis, as of yesterday, to the PLO. Let's assume that somehow they bring it off, but maybe not without another war of some sort, where even this time the Israelis themselves have their backs to the wall and could be very deeply and grievously hurt because there are a lot of powerful weapons that have been stockpiled by some of these people. The United States has had a ridiculous position of trying to, at one hand, placate and be friendly toward and cooperate with all of the Arab nations, principally the oil producers in OPEC, and especially Saudi Arabia, who are implacable enemies of the Jews. Of course, you know, there is a big pipeline that goes right across from Saudi Arabia, from the Gulf, right through Israel, and right down there to the major port at Haifa, and is offloaded, and that could be severed, and that would be a giant problem as well. But... The United States, because of our oil imports, has found it necessary to try to cooperate with all the Arabs, yet because there are millions of Jews in the United States, and because many of our major industries, our banks, our educational institutions, our entertainment industry, our great musicians, our authors, our architects, many advisors like Bernard Baruch to many, many presidents, many people in Congress and the Senate, many people in government, are Jews. The United States, not only because it is a Judeo-Christian society, with its roots in the so-called Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church going back to the Middle East, looking upon that area as the holiest site to all of Christendom as well as all of those Jews, and there are millions of them in this country more by far in New York City than in Israel alone, we have a tremendous commitment, a tremendous affinity, and our population, because there are so many of them who are fantastically wealthy and who have such a powerful lobby 
And many people have conspiracy theories all over the place coming out your ears where they think that the Jews are practically manipulating the world, and I won't get into that. And there is some substance to some of it. I'm not going to put it all down that there aren't such things as conspiracies because I know that there are, but I don't go along with some of the conspiracies, the trilateral convention and all this stuff, the people running around like a chicken little. But would it be possible that even though the Jews will never, repeat never, in great capital letters, triple underline, triple exclamation point, give back eastern Jerusalem or the holy sites of the old city. They won't do it. Short of a devastating war, which would be, according to their own threat, pulling down the temple of humanity. They made that threat. And they do have the atom bomb. I said that clear back in 1973, and our State Department finally got around to admitting it in about 1984. But I knew they had the atom bomb when I knew the way we reacted during the Nixon administration when we shipped NATO equipment from forward NATO bases risking oil, Arab oil embargo, which sent the entire economy of the world into a tailspin from which we have never recovered when OPEC used oil as a political weapon when our own congressmen were saying to the American people they would never do that. But they did it because of U.S. support for Israel during the Yom Kippur War when Israel was really getting the worst of it. And the Egyptian army had broached the Bar Lev line and was roaring across the Sinai, and it looked like Israel might lose that war. The United States came to their aid with emergency shipments of tanks, spare parts, ammunition, guns, everything that they could ship to them, including aircraft. And Israel turned around and won, and that's when the spy satellite technology got into the act, and two superpowers saw eventually the Russians did, that the Israelis had gone down to the southern part of the Sinai, had crossed the Suez Canal, and were coming up toward Cairo from the south, and had already encircled the, the uh, Third Army of Egypt and could have probably annihilated it. So they said, halt. The big powers got in, intervened, and they halted the war. You might ask, incidentally, does what happens way over in the Middle East have any kind of power to influence or to impact you on a day-to-day -day basis from the standpoint of the global economy, from the standpoint of their virtual control of the world's oil supplies, of their control, their stranglehold on Japanese and West European and American to practically 50% or more oil supplies? Oh, I should say, those people can call the tune and we will dance the jig right quickly. Now, let's just assume that a Palestinian state is put in place. Let's assume that another warfare, another war does break out, and this time the Israelis are really hurt and hurt bad. The Tel Aviv is bombed, or worse, or the same thing, rocketed. We know now that there are rockets that a man can stand, just like a lightweight bazooka, hold it on his shoulder, and simply track a high-flying jet aircraft, pull a trigger, and that rocket will climb up there and seek by its heat-seeking nose a, or magnetic, or whatever kind of a device it has, and shoot down the airliner. The other day, two Mercy-type aircraft, one survived, the other was shot down, I think, wasn't over in Western Africa. They were DC-7s, and they weren't that high, perhaps. But now there are handheld rockets that can demolish a tank, handheld rockets that can shoot down aircraft, and there are also small, portable rockets in the hands of the Arabs that have a 20, 30, 40, 50-mile range that can deal terrible devastation to cities like Haifa or Tel Aviv or New Jerusalem. Let's assume that a war does get started and that the Jews suffer very, very mightily. A scenario I'm going to propose might be something like this. The big powers would be forced to intervene. 
since the United Nations has never been effective, it could be possible that sometime in the future a multinational European force, that's not without precedent, it's happened in Lebanon, which is why some of them have been kidnapped, including people from Switzerland and West Germany. A multinational European force could be contributed to keep the peace, to keep these protagonists from each other in the nation of Israel. Who could go down in history as the most revered, most respected, most worshipped human being on the face of the earth if he could personally guarantee peace in the Middle East? Who could issue a decree that he is going to return to the ancient roots of the mother church? Could decree it never began in Rome, it began in Jerusalem. I will go to Jerusalem, declare it as I have said in my various encyclicals and my various statements for years and years, corpus separatum, or an open free city, keep all these people from fighting over it, take my position as the vicar of Christ in a temple, some kind of an edifice, whether it's temporarily demonstrated, uh, I should say consecrated or some kind of an old cornerstone is discovered and perhaps some kind of a temporary building is thrown up over it. And it would fulfill the requirements of the second chapter of Second Thessalonians, which says that the great false prophet or the man of perdition is going to sit in a temple called the temple of God, claiming that he is God, having the power to actually call down fire from heaven above to deceive them that dwell on the earth and to impose, of course, the mark of the beast. If you look at your chronology, it is at that time, then shall be great tribulation such as was not since the beginning of the world of that time. The twelfth chapter of the book of Daniel proves it. The Olivet Prophecies of Luke 21 and Matthew 24 prove it. When you see the abomination of desolation, then let them that be in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him, look at this language, which is on the housetop, verse 17 of Matthew 24, not come down to take anything out of his house. Now, in that nation, and I've slept on the roof at our own office building near Ramallah in Jerusalem, they go up to the housetop at night to escape the stifling heat of the day. It's cool. It's a place to sit around and chat. They hang their washing on the rooftop. They're flat roofs. They go up there to sit and to visit and to talk. A woman might be up there hanging her washing, but her baby is down inside the house and her laundry and so on. There is a way to go by what is called the way of the roofs, and during Jesus' day that was common. The entire block could be negotiated above the street by walking across the tops of the roofs, then down an outside stairway to the street, and thence to slip away. The language of this prophecy, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes, is not the language of someone living in their home, watching television, having a month or two or three of warning of impending war drums, of the marshalling of troops, of the breakdown of negotiations, of the potential of the beginning of the outbreak of hostilities. No, it's an immediate threat. It is a threat that is so immediate it is as if you're living in a land where there are garrisons of soldiers, where there are people who are armed and are capable of doing you grievous bodily harm all about you, all the time. But you're living and working in an environment where all of a sudden one day you're on the rooftop and you're hanging up your washing 
and you see something that is not as it should be. You hear something that is not quite right. You see perhaps some trucks screeching to a halt, some barricades going up on the corner. You hear a whistle and look down, and there are a whole group of troops piling out of the back end of a stake bed truck. Then at that time, you're told, do not go down even to delay long enough to take something out of your house. Or if you're out working in your field and your house is over there a couple of hundred yards, don't try to get back to your house. Just whistle it a little tune and walk right on out of the fields and try to disappear and to save your hide, for then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world at this time. If a Palestinian state is put in place in the middle of Israel, can you imagine what that would mean if it is given sovereignty? First of all, do you think the Israelis will ever go along with it? I say no, not short of practically losing another limited war, which brings them just about to their knees. I say no, not short of that. But if they were to lose tens of thousands, if Tel Aviv and Jerusalem itself were to be bombed, if thousands of Israelis lose their lives in another round of war, there might be an imposition which forces the Jews on the part of the superpowers cooperating between the United States and the Soviet Union and Northwestern Europe, which garrison that country with a multinational force which brings about a situation just like I am portraying the scenario of the Pope moving his Vatican or his so-called Holy See to Jerusalem, an armed force made up of Germans and other Europeans inside Israel, and then a king of the south, whoever he shall be, fulfilling Daniel 11.40, who pushes that, whatever that means, that seems to me to be economic or political rather than military, but it could be all and eventually might be military. And I think of oil when I think of that of a block of Arab states, and I do not know yet who will be that king of the south, but the scenario I am presenting may be fairly close to the real one. It may not be quite accurate, but something along that line is going to take place. And I am looking at what is happening now as being a really major development, something you want to watch. The United States talking to this murderer of women and children, the reaction of the Israelis, what happens next? Are we going to try to force the Jewish nation to give in and to concede and to kick tens of thousands of Jews who have built big, solid buildings, and I've seen many of them. I've been there from the Arab side and the Jewish side. We're talking of whole cities, some of them the size of White House and, you know, Flint and so on here with, with thousands and thousands of people in great stone buildings and shops and schools and so on that exist in dozens of towns all over the West Bank. Are they going to go in and bulldoze them out like they did the settlements in the Sinai what will be the reaction of the Jewish race? Because remember, they are divided too. They're not all together on every issue at all. There have been riots and demonstrations that are pro-Palestinian Arab among the Jewish populace in these last weeks and months. So it is a nettlesome problem. It is the focal point of all of Bible prophecy, of all of Bible history. And what happens in the streets of Jerusalem is going to incredibly and dynamically affect this work this church, and your personal life. So remember, Jesus Christ said, when you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place, for it ought not, then let them which be in Judea flee to the mountains. Thankfully, I don't dwell in Judea. Maybe I can sit over here and have a little time to watch what will happen next.